You see, people collect all kinds of things. New, old, priceless, worthless. Darling, it doesn't matter what. I simply must know why. Those mothballs shouldn't get to keep all the secrets. This is the Mothball Prophecies. Hello and welcome to the Mothball Prophecies. I'm Samantha Mashburn. And I'm Jill Huffman. And I'm Spellcheck. And we're sitting down again today in the beloved Mothball lair, the 70s lair, now that now I'm a little apprehensive of because of this episode. We decided, yeah, it's old. It's not that bad, though. No. Well, but we're we'll, going to find out we'll how dive bad. Into it. We're probably all ingesting lead as we breathe. Probably. It's probably in my Starbucks cup. Most definitely your cup today. <laughs> oh, shit. Probably. <laughs> um, we were sitting down kind of discussing what we were going to cover for this deep dive curio corner. And I like looked up and I was like, we should do poisons. And then Spellcheck's Ooh. eyes got gigantic. Yes. And Jill was into it. And we always, you know, our litmus test is if it gives us goosebumps or makes our nipples hard. Yeah. Straight into it. Right. And they got hard fast. Yeah. My baby maker went whew, for poisons. <laughs> for toxins. <laughs> My loins were aflame. Oh. Whoa. Putting that in a book. Yeah. <laughs> You're welcome. But I was um, doing a like <laughs> looking some things up today. And then I was like, uh, is this going to make me want to throw stuff away? Well, I mean, you might want to put it behind a protective barrier. You might, might. not want to suck on it. I mean, saying. now we know why grandma had the china hutch where yep. nobody could touch anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was doing a, a lot of research and looking into things. And obviously, that's what this whole point of this episode is. But I was just surprised on a few things of like, how long... And still, like, what amount of toxins and different things are still being used in production? Oh, yeah. Oh, for sure. There's poison everywhere. Yeah. So I was just like, okay, and I was, I was, we were at my in-law's house for a birthday party, and I was doing my research and writing on my sister-in-law's sketch pad, and they were like, what are you doing? And I was like, it's for the podcast. And then I was telling, they were like, well, tell us what you wrote down. (laughs) Oh, no. So I was like, well, this is just what I covered and we're going to do these different things. Anyways, we're talking today about the kind of infamous toxins, poisons, heavy metals that were used in yesteryear's times Mm -hmm. and And, lots of things. Well, and stuff that is highly collectible. Highly collectible. So we're going to be covering today specifically, we're going to be covering lead and asbestos. And we're doing lead in two realms. Yeah, I'm. I'm going to be talking about lead uh, in like old homes, mm-hmm. and uh, Sam's going to be talking about all the the lead in the toys that we you yeah know, our, that we chewed on. Our grandparents used to play with. Ah mm-hmm. oh, man! And Jill is covering everybody's favorite uranium. We're finally going to get to the bottom of it. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm also talking about arsenic wallpaper, just because. Yes. And I'm going to wrap it all up in a pretty little asbestos bow for us today. <laughs> Beautiful. Which was, you always hear about it, but you never know a lot about it. Mm-hmm. So. I up. have pulled out asbestos tile from a home and I'm. <laughs> okay. You guys would. I mean. Yeah. It was. We'll, we'll get there. We'll get into it. Yeah. But before we get into all of those, Jill, why don't you start us out with our, uh, the, the pod fave? Yeah. What everyone wants to hear about. You know, I as I was reading this, I was like, ooh, hmm. oh, shit. 
best reaction. Um, so this article, um, I found most of them. I mean, there was tons out there, so I had to kind of narrow it down. But this one came from the glassmuseum.com. Mm. Um, and it says, during the early 19th century, glassmakers in Central Europe started to use uranium as a good way to make yellow and green glass. In 1789, Martin Klauprof in Germany had first recognized uranium as a chemical element, which, yeah, mm-hmm. and is said to have added it to glass as a colorant. But it was 50 years later that glass makers in Bohemia, seeking new colors in highly competitive market for glass, started to use uranium. So you'll notice, I'm just going to interrupt real quick, you'll notice that a lot of the poisons that we talk about or that you might do research on were initially used because of their pigment or mm-hmm. because of the color that they produced. Yeah, a lot of it was because of they uh, needed a, a new color. Yeah, a lot of the dangerous poisonous stuff is mm-hmm. real pretty. Well, and even mm-hmm. when we talked to Gabriela Hernandez, yeah. a lot of the original makeup lines yep. contained. Absolutely. Yeah, and well, that's, and, yeah, and she said that's why it was so hard to match the colors mm-hmm. because you can't use that. And lead as a as a face paint has been for was used hundreds and hundreds of years. Yeah. yeah. Bohemia became part of the Austrian Empire with the peace settlement in 1815 after the Napoleonic Wars. And the glass trade prospered under peaceful conditions until 1850s. This area, which had numerous glassworks in that period, is now split between the Czech Republic, Austria, and Germany. The most striking thing about fluorescent or uranium glass is that it's radioactive, which is how why we all get giddy when mm-hmm. we shine our black lights. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you apply the um, a Geiger counter, you will get a positive reading. If you shine in um, your black light, of course, it glows. But the levels are not so far as all believe in any way harmful. So then it goes. This is this was like really fascinating to me. So two pounds of uranium oxide were typically added to around 180 pounds of other constituents. Um, Tests conducted by Jay Glickman and separate tests by, you might know this name, Frank Fenton of Fenton (gasps) Glass, have shown that the radiation levels from even large quantities of uranium glass at close quarters are no more harmful than those associated with television sets or microwave ovens. Like old TVs or new Um, TVs? It didn't say, but I'd probably say probably both. For the time frame. Yeah. That is, I was, I'm so glad that you found the ratio of uranium oxide to pounds of glass. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's what I was like, oh, well then it's like, teeny tiny but then you can see why some would be more vibrant than Mm -hmm. others because it would just depend on how much they added well and i would be curious to know what that different uh pound per pound was before world war ii and after world war ii well yeah and i was thinking the same thing they were probably more before world war ii actually i think this says about it so let's go on yes do it um so if you get your black light and shining down on the urine glass, the object will fluoresce beautifully, which we've all seen, and that's why we all get giddy. Um, but <laughs> I liked how they put a disclaimer in mm-hmm. here. Don't look at the light directly. The it's UV bad. light. The black light. Oh, yeah. Like a laser. Don't shine it in your eyes. <laughs> you burn your retinas. Um, when added to glass, usually an oxide uranium produces colors varying from amber through all 
the shades of yellow, to bright apple green depending on the glass mixture. When added to glass mixture with a very high lead content, over 70% of lead oxide, it produces a deep red color. Whoa! Not a practical commercial proposition, however. That's so cool. So is it referred to as leaded uranium glass? It never said like what it... um, Wow. New thing to find. Yeah. So then I was like, well, shit. How many times have we not like shined over? Right. Now we're just going to shine (laughs) floodlights. Just bring a spotlight into all that. So Josef Rindel is usually credited for inventing uranium glass in 1830 under the name Anagrun for uranium yellowish yellowish green glass and anagleb for uranium yellow glass, naming them after his wife, Anna Maria, (laughs) his factory, Doni Polupni in Bohemia. Doni Palupni is where my family hails from. Oh, my goodness. Where are you from? Doni Palupni. (laughs) County Donegal. (laughs) 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 Sorry. Um, Cut that. But they made these um, kinds. (laughs) Focus, people. (laughs) We're having a lesson here. (laughs) Stop looking at me, Sam. Do you have something you'd like to tell with the class? No, I need to be quiet. I'm going to sit on my hands. No, don't sit on your hands. Metaphorically. We'll get back on track. But so that kind of uranium glass was made um, between 1830 and 1848. And they had a picture in the article and it looks just like yellow glass. Like Like Vaseline glass. Canary yellow? Like a a yellow 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 glass. Yeah, just yellow. Hmm. So start shining your lights. That's a pretty like solid color. Yeah. Yeah, That's kind of surprising. I will start seeing start shining your light to the start spreading the news. (laughs) (laughs) Start shining your light. (laughs) Oh, Uh I'm done, teacher. Are you sure? Mm -hmm. Okay. Sorry, Jill. In 1836, after a visit to Bohemia, a French society for encouraging industry offered prizes for imitations of Bohemian glass. In 1838. The Closy Leroy factory in France was producing uranium glass. In 1843, the French glassworks of Brac started making uranium glass, which they called Cristal Dicorid. And also introduced an opaque apple green version, which they called um, Chrysophrase. Chrysophrase. Yes, that's <laughs> But that's that far the frosted kind that you see sometimes. Oh, yeah, frosted uranium glass. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a thing. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know it's, about that. I've seen it like a lot of like Fenton and stuff like that. Yeah, oh. yeah. So the frosted Whoa. stuff. Yeah, wow. I always love these little dot connectors. I know it's a small world. Um, during during this early period, uranium glass was normally heavy, um, heavy colored glass, crystal glass with beautiful facet cutting and polishing. It was also sometimes decorated with enamel or engraved. When pressed glass became popular later in the century, uranium was often used to make green and yellow shades by factories all over the world, including the U.S. and England. During the later part of the 19th century, some glass with uranium was made with heat-sensitive chemicals, which turned milky white um, when reheated. 
producing the shade effect from yellow to milky white at the edges. This kind of glass is often called Vaseline glass. Ooh! But of its, um, because of its similarity to the ointment, well, <laughs> yeah, it was called because it looks like Vaseline, mm-hmm. like literally. That was something I had never um, known and was too ashamed to ask. So well, thank and you. <laughs> the terms are, are debated also, Vaseline yes. and uranium. Yeah, a lot. Um, yeah, there's like a whole like. It's like a. It's a thing. I don't know if you wrote anything down about it. I didn't. Okay. Do people fight about well, this? Well, no. So Vaseline, the term Vaseline glass mm-hmm. started somewhere in the 50s. Yeah. The term uranium glass predates the 50s. Mm-hmm. Okay. But there's people that think it's the the other way around, that Vaseline oh. goes back to the 1830s and uranium is the 50s where it's the opposite. So yeah, because if you think about it, Vaseline wasn't made Mm-mm. back then. And this is when the production was changing, too, because there was a shortage of uranium for 15 years. Yeah. So they started to shift the production of uranium glass. So it's really just people debating facts. Always. Oh. Same with, like, the antique vintage conversation. Yeah. What's antique and what's vintage? Yeah. I In my book, antique mm-hmm. is over 100 years old. It has to be over mm-hmm. 100 years old to fall into the category. Right. Yeah. Vintage, to me, has to be, like, 50 to 75. And then, you know, kind of scales back from there vintage would be like 70s and earlier 70s to 50s 40s yeah but it's that's a it's a that's personal keeping term yeah i mean it's just i don't know it's stupid is what it is Mm -hmm. get off your high horse exactly whoever you are yeah and so davison's lemon pearline contains uranium and is classified as one of a kind of vaseline glass there's there's an article and pictures of it about all that. That's like a whole nother section that you can just keep going. Like it just literally is a black hole. Well, especially because it's been around for so long. There's a lot. Yeah, and everybody was doing it. And mm-hmm. um, so uranium though is the most common source of yellow and green coloring for over a hundred years. In the 1940s, though, it was banned as a glass constituent. Because uranium was used to make uranium bombs, the atom bomb. Fuck. Mm-hmm. So there, and there, <laughs> there were fears of the health of glass workers by that time. Everybody was like, "Hey, if we're making bombs out of this, <laughs> oh shit!" We've also been finding some other questionable things <laughs> that we're doing <laughs> in the workplace. Yeah. yeah. You'd think that there would have been a connection made previous because the danger of like radium. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, like the radium. Yeah, the radium was well girls. known yeah. by that time. Yeah. Well, it's just funny. Like as soon as something becomes a, a weapon, then they're like, oh shit, maybe we shouldn't have been using that doing for other things, guys. Um, but so, of course, both the US and UK governments wanted to restrict the access to uranium for military reasons. The British government even confiscated large quantities of glassmaking materials which had uranium in them just after the war. Bagley's of Yorkshire lost three tons of confiscated materials. Wow. Oh, that's devastating. That is everything. Yeah. That's that was probably all they had. Yeah, I mean that's basically every single piece they could find. Even the shards. Was he I'm sorry? Was the shards <laughs> the shard shards i Multiple. came across the shards yeah you mean the shits <laughs> <laughs> yeah 
So it, what they were confiscating the shards of glass? No, they confiscated everything. Wow, down to down to. Wow, because what year was they, that? Um, in the forties. Oh well, it probably would have been later. Um, Post World War Two. Well, it would have been um, in closer to the end of the war is what I was mm-hmm. trying to say. Yeah, because well, there was still English Irish conflict, right? Well, there. Well, there's always going to be English Irish conflict. Um, but specifically uh, with the war and kind of the whole Project Manhattan thing, that would have been more 44, 45. Mm-hmm. Okay. So if there's not a specific year there, I would bet money it would be 44, 45. Yeah. Interesting. I'll have to go into the British call, government. I'll call the Queen really yeah, quick. Yeah, could you? Yeah. Find out. I bet she knows. I'll be right back. I'll do that research tonight. Don't Ooh, worry. Please. I don't me. need to sleep. <laughs> So, but during the 1950s, the restrictions were lifted and some companies now use uranium as a colorant occasionally. However, there are other chemicals which can now be used to produce the same colors and the price of uranium oxide is, because well, it's high now. Oh, yeah. Um, so they're only using like uranium glass for special occasions like Christmas yeah. and Hanukkah. And- <laughs> yes. Yeah. For yeah. company. Yeah. Sam Hain. Sam Wynn. Say, say Samwin. My English brain in the... <laughs> I did my best. <laughs> okay. Like, wait, what? Gaelic doesn't make any sense as a language, it so it's okay. Um, but so, of course, there's still uh, rigorous, rigorous control regulations covering protective clothing for workers, lead shielding for storage areas, and monitoring of the radiation. Small mounts have been made, usually small items, and usually made for collectors. Mm. Boyd Glass and Fenton Art Art Glass are two U.S. companies that produce uranium glass items today. Mm -hmm. Still? I didn't know that either. And there's lots of, there's still like um, Czech glass makers that make beads from uranium glass. There's... Lots of different people that still make items yeah. that contain uranium oxide, whether it's from recycled glass that's remelted. Or... Oh, I hadn't even thought of that. Mm-hmm. What does that do to the uranium when you heat it like that? That's got to release something. I'm not sure because I, I don't, I don't. Uh-huh. Well, there was like four million or billion pieces of uranium glass made during the time that it was in high production. Mm-hmm. So the amount of stuff that's probably broken and chipped that could be smelted back down is probably pretty infinite. Well, I just wonder if it, um, I mean, the main component that is, the, the main thing we can see with uranium glass is the glow when we put the black light on it. I wonder if uranium glass that is melted down and then reformed glows less. I'll look. I'll look it up. Yeah. Um, but that was it basically for that article. Um, but it did. So there was a like a little blurb on it. I was like reading the article and then I was like, wait a minute, this doesn't even like really flow. But I guess there's um, a Burmese glass mm-hmm. that was made by Mount Washington Glass Company from the mid 1800s that contained uranium. And the form, like they give the formula that's like what's in it. And the formula for Burmese glass that was pen- patented by Frederick S. Shirley in December 1885. So it has 100 pounds of white sand, 36 pounds of lead oxide which was refined, 25 pounds purified potash. Potash? I've heard both. Mm-hmm. Seven pounds of nitre, five pounds of bicarbonate of soda, six pounds of floor spar, five pounds of field spar, 
two pounds of uranium oxide and 1.5 pennyweights of colloidal gold. Oh, colloidal? Colloidal. Colloidal. Um, so the gold gave Burmese glass its heated heat sensitivity so that when the parts were reheated during manu- um, manufacturing, turned to a salmon color while the rest of the object remained like a creamy yellow. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I love that there's just regular old baking soda in there. No, right. Let's <laughs> throw that in for That's a good measure. Awesome. Let's well, just hold like Baking soda is so useful in so many ways. It's literally, you can, it's, we could do an episode on baking soda, basically. <laughs> we really could. Baking soda is amazing. But I love how they had like, like I just want to sit there and watch them be like, no, put a one more pound. One more pound. No, back up on that one. How big was that bowl they're using? Um, It's probably like a large vat. That's a it's, people-sized bowl, mm-hmm. right? But yeah. So I didn't find anything specifically about like if it's reheated, if it's damaged. Right. But um, uranium, it's important to understand the radioactivity behind it. Uranium is naturally radioactive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, its nucleus is unstable, so the element is in a constant state of decay. Mm. So I think, I don't know, by breaking it down by more heat, it's I don't know that it would really affect it because they're folding the initial uranium oxide into the hot glass to make it glow and turn the color. Right. And I, I don't know if with that first heating would have destroyed the uranium oxide, you would think, with the heat. Whereas if you crushed it up and remelted it to make a new piece of glass... I'm going to ask my dad. That's Please. Some, that's something my dad would know. I was going to say, I need, yeah. That was fantastic, Joe. Um, yeah, Thanks. thank you for that. Thanks, guys. Thanks. There was, I did find, because we were looking for the um, percentage, right, when it changed. Buckley A. All in 1980 estimated that there were at least 4,160,000 pieces of decorative uranium glass produced only in the U.S. Whoa. Between 1958 and 1978. So in 20 years. That's so much. And um, 15,000 drinking glasses from 1968 to 1972. <laughs> the uranium content of Vaseline glass. So remember, Vaseline glass is pre world or post World War II, 50s era. Mm hmm. Um, is often on the order of 2% by weight. Nevertheless, the uranium content in the glass manufactured in the early 1900s reached as high as 25% by weight. Woo! Yeah. So that's the difference in that glow mm-hmm. when you're in a store mm-hmm. and you're illuminating different pieces of uranium glass. So if it's real bright, it's, it's old. old. It's old. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Pre- o- older than 1945. Yeah. And then you go into yeah. looking up the marks. and That's a really good tip. Thank you. Do we get the tip noise? Here's your vintage tip of the week. Doing. You get two this week. But yeah, so it was. that's how I explain to people to identify the age of their uranium glass. Because mm-hmm. I have a couple of pieces specifically that are pre-1945. Yeah, you know, I'm just now realizing now that you've said that. I have some pieces I know are from the 30s. Mm-hmm. But I recently got a piece that is not nearly as bright mm-hmm. and i wondered why that must be why yeah that 15 year period yeah. where they weren't mm-hmm. using as much and i have i wish that black light illuminated well in a photograph right because uranium yeah. glass does not photograph well but i have like in my china cabinet here i have this um milk glass jadeite um kitchenaid P- or sunbeam mixer spout and it glows and then I have stuff that like Jill's given me, like the Hazel Atlas cups mm. you got me are 1930s. Yeah. Just different things like that. And it's always interesting 
to me um, that just to like see that when I'm out picking and then seeing it in my collection. Yeah, I know. And I get, I still get excited every time I find a piece Mm -hmm. and I always have to bring it home. I can't leave it. Yes. And if you're listening to this episode in the year 2021 and you have not received a blacklight keychain from us, drop a comment under this episode, please. Tell us. And you should have gotten them all. You'll get one. I was going to say, they should have. Everybody should have one. Yeah. Um, we ordered them from Amazon. And they're, my. I don't even carry my regular flashlight anymore with me. No, it's so much easier. Mm-hmm. And they're very powerful. Mm-hmm. They are. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Jasmine from Corkscrew, um, she has like a uranium glass, like blue light pen. Yes. That well, you can like point across the room. Whoa. Like you could be like stealth, stealth about it. Like a laser pointer? Yes. yes. Oh. But for uranium glass. Um, another thing that, and I say this too much, I was surprised that the next thing we're going to talk about is asbestos. And I was so surprised at how far asbestos goes back. We're talking like 450 B.C., it's one of those yeah. things that feels modern, but yeah. it really isn't. And I just, um, there, was a, there was a couple articles I'm going to read from. One of, some of the information I got comes from mesothelioma.com. <laughs> Real mad I missed well, out on that domain I mean. name. And then the other article I have, the other one is from asbestos.com. So if you're in the market <laughs> for any of those domain <laughs> names, it's not going to happen for you. That's Those are those are beautiful. They're like, this is easy. Mm-hmm. Um, so asbestos is um, a mineral or a mineral material that's found in the earth naturally. Asbestos occurs naturally on every continent in the world. Um, archaeologists first found the fibers of asbestos in debris dating back to the Stone Age. Whoa. 750,000 years ago. And it's believed that as early as 4,000 BC, asbestos's long hair-like fibers were used for wicks and lamps in candles. I'm sorry. The, the thing that's used as a flame retardant? Was used for flame? Was used for fire? Isn't it ironic? Don't, don't you think? And there was also... There, so this is some interesting facts about where they found asbestos in ancient times. So they found... Um, Egyptian pharaohs were wrapped in asbestos cloth to protect their bodies from deterioration. Dude! That sounds, mm-hmm. Yeah, that sounds about right. That's genius. Um, in Finland, clay pots were found dating back to 2500 BC. They had asbestos, which were believed to strengthen the pots and make them resistant to fire so that you could cook things inside of the pot, inside of the fire, and not use your, lose your pot. Those Finns, dude. And it was cold. Another interesting part of asbestos was, this is comes from ancient Greece, in a historian, he used the asbestos shrouds wrapped around, they put them around the dead before they were put on a funeral pyre so that the dead's ashes wouldn't mix with the funeral pyre's ashes and fly away. Whoa, that's pretty genius. So everything was contained and yeah. they could then do the rest of their Greek thing. <laughs> um, yeah. So. I know. There it is. So a lot of um, others believe that the word's origin can be traced back to a Latin idiom, amiantus, meaning unsoiled or unpolluted, because the ancient Romans were said to have woven asbestos fibers in their cloth-like material that was sewn into tablecloths and napkins. So they use it as like a sanitary thing. That makes sense. And they were cleaned by throwing them into the fire. (gasps) 
That is genius. Whoa. So before what? like laundry, they were just like, put that shit in the fire. That, it, oh my god could you imagine mm-hmm. that is start awesome. the fire i gotta do some laundry so when they came out they were astounded they were unharmed and they were whiter and clean clean and le- like legit yeah. legitly hygiene hygienic <laughs> hygienic <laughs> i'm so excited i let it happen <laughs> well and the other thing too so while the greeks and romans while they were understanding the unique properties of asbestos they were also noting the harmful side effects of asbestos back then they noted, um, so they noted first in the people that mined the fiber from the stone quarries. Oh, yeah. And a Greek geographer, Strabo, noted a sickness of the lungs mm-hmm. in slaves who, wore, who wove asbestos cloth. Roman historian, naturalist, and philosopher Pliny, Pliny the Elder, wrote of the disease of slaves and actually described the use of, get this, it's very 2020, of thin membrane membrane from the bladder of a goat or lamb used by the slave miners as early respirators in an attempt <gasps> to protect them from inhaling asbestos fibers while they worked. Whoa. Wow. That isn't I yeah. So that we have yeah. So we have that early Greek origin. Another Greek origin of it um comes from the ancient Greek term suspestos. <laughs> <laughs> Meaning inextinguishable, <laughs> get it spell check, inextinguishable or unquenchable. <laughs> Say it again. Suspestus. <laughs> I don't know. That seems pretty suspestus to me. <laughs> no. Oh, oh golly. So, and then it just continues through time. So we have King Charlemagne of France. He had a tablecloth made of asbestos to prevent it from burning during the accidental fires that frequently occurred during feasts. Oh, yeah. Oh. They also wrapped the bodies of dead generals in asbestos. Um, By the end of the first millennium, cremation cloths, mats, wicks, and temple lamps were fashioned from chrysotile asbestos from Cyprus. I don't understand how it could be used as a wick. I don't know. That's it had to have been woven. I wonder well if they or if they were dipping it in an accelerant, and then the wick would never disappear. The accelerant would that I can understand. Like doing like. Like Make me dip it in animal fat or oils and things like that. And then you always had the wick. So the fibers uh, are porous then. I'm not sure. This is purely speculation. In 1095, the French, German, and Italian knights who fought in the First Crusade used a catapult called a trebuchet, right? To fling flaming bags of pitch and tar wrapped in asbestos bags. There's your answer. Hell yeah. They were using uh, pitch or tar. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Ding, ding, ding. Greg, give us a ding, ding, ding. Um, and the, obviously they're throwing him city walls, right? Um, yeah. Marco Polo wrote about the clothing made by the Mongolians, a fabric that which would not burn, <laughs> which sounds <laughs> frustrated. It sounds like witchcraft. Um, he Polo also visited an asbestos mine in China to disprove that asbestos came from the hair of a woolly lizard. <laughs> Wait, <laughs> a woolly? A woolly lizard? lizard. Well, they got woolly other back animals. Then, lizards were basically dragons, so he was like fire re- retardant. Maybe oh. that's where dragons came from. They're Dragon. asbestos dogs. Dragon. What? <laughs> Dra- the mythology of dragons is much A older. poor dog just like rolled in asbestos and then like oh. kind of caught on fire but didn't burn. Like, whoa, what the fuck? There might be something to that. How much did I drink? So this continues. Uh, the Christa. 
chrysotile asbestos was mined during the reign of Peter the Great from 1682 to 1725. A purse made from this fireproof asbestos is now part of London's Natural History Museum. Ooh. It was brought to England by Benjamin Franklin during his first visit they're like hey guys what's up here's this bag i found probably during one of his crazy sex parties i probably he's like hey sex asbestos bag (laughs) (laughs) we'll trade for um paper made from asbestos was discovered in italy in the early 1700s keep this little nugget in your brain the paper specifically okay and i might have you're gonna get your stim ready oh god okay what you're gonna be very happy it's coming in a minute i'll give you a thumbs up okay um, by the 1800s, the Italian government was utilizing asbestos in its banknotes. The Parisian Fire Brigade in the mid-1850s wore jackets and helmets made from asbestos. So as we're seeing, as time is progressing, the commercialization of asbestos is getting grander and grander mm-hmm. and grander. Woo! But it wasn't a flourishing industry until the late 1800s, right as we come into the Industrial Revolution. Ta-da! And that helped, it helped sustain the steady growth of the industry. This is where we started into the practical and commercial uses of asbestos and its myriad of applications. Um, Its mining and manufacturing exploded. So did its dangerous health effects on those who mined and refined the the mineral Um, and people who worked with it. Asbestos's resistance to chemicals, heat, water, and electricity made it an excellent insulator for steam engines, turbines, boilers, ovens, and electrical generators. That powered, obviously, the Industrial Revolution. The malleable properties of asbestos made it an important building and binding and strengthening commodity. Um, Asbestos was mined all over the world. Um, In the 19th century, blue asbestos had been found in the Free State Africa. In 1876, chrysolite, which is white asbestos, was discovered in the Thetford Township in southeastern Quebec. Shortly afterward, Canadians established the world's first commercial asbestos mines. They joined Russia in excavating the soft, fibrous form of the mineral, which is found in more than 95% of all asbestos products. In the early 1870s, they also saw the founding of large asbestos industry in Scotland, Germany, and England. Italy had been mining its version of asbestos for decades. Australia came in close behind, mining it out of New South Wales in the 1800s. And by the early 1900s, anthophyllite asbestos was mined in Finland. Amosite, brown asbestos, was discovered in South Africa. Chrysolite was in the mines of Swaziland and Zimbabwe and marketed around the world. Um, let's see. Okay. So everything's starting to accelerate, right? We're starting to get a little deeper into this. And asbestos mining was not mechanized before the 1800s the heavy work of chipping away the walk and extracting the asbestos for further processing was performed manually Mm -hmm. by horses Mm -hmm. and goats and humans and back in this time in the greek time they were also discovering it in like the damage to animals bodies oh yeah oh yeah from the asbestos so of course asbestos mining becomes industrialized like everything does it's manpower multiplied to steam driven machinery and mining methods by the early 1900s asbestos production had grown Worldwide to more than three thirty thousand tons annually. Damn. And this is where the whole family gets in on the workforce. We have children, women, mm. men oh, yeah. in the mines, working, preparing, carting. Carting is a wool term where you put the, it looks like two dog brushes and you yeah. pull it apart. Um, so they were carting the raw fibers while men toiled in the mines. So everybody was having a hand in this. It makes the fibers line up with each other. Mm-hmm. The carting. Thank you. 
Um, and then all with this, the uses expanded. Um, Henry Ward Johns in 1858 founded the H.W. Johns Manufacturing Company in Lower Manhattan when he was 21. He sold the brand new fireproof roofing material made of burlap, asbestos tar, and other ingredients. The antiphylite asbestos he used came from the quarry in Staten Island. For the next 40 years before he died from dust phthisis pneumonitis, pneumonitis, yeah, dust phthisis pneumonitis, believed to be asbestosis. John's greatly expanded the number of asbestos applications. His firm merged with Manville Covering in 1901, and it was the largest manufacturing enterprise that used asbestos in the United States. Hmm. In 1896, the first asbestos brake linings for new horseless carriages were made by Ferrodo, a British company. Horseless carriage? <laughs> right. <laughs> a car. The first patent was used to manufacture asbestos cement sheets. High-pressure asbestos gaskets were turned out by Klinger in Austria. And the first asbestos pipes were developed in eight in Italy in 1913. Mining in the U.S. spiked in the 1960s and 70s. What? With dozens of operations on the East Coast and in California. The King City Asbestos Company mine in West Central California was, last, was the last active asbestos mine in the U.S., closing... In 2002. What? what? In California. Of all places, I would expect something like that in like Virginia maybe, but what? Right. So the upsetting thing about this <laughs> is when asbestos was first being manufactured, there was known cause that it was very harmful. Yeah, mm -hmm. people knew. That's the thing. Right. And it was noted as early as 1897 by an Austrian doctor. He attributed the pulmonary troubles in one of his patients to the inhalation of asbestos dust. And asbestos, it isn't a one time and you could get some damage from it. It's over multiple times because the fibers of asbestos yeah. lie mm -hmm. dormant in your lungs and your abdominal cavity. Ugh. So you could be exposed to it for a long time, similar to the radium girls, right? Yeah, you get, it's like, uh, it builds up. Mm -hmm. So the, yeah, they were exposed for a long time and then... It was like, oh, shit. In 1906, the first documented death of asbestos worker was from pulmonary, pulmonary failure and was recorded by Dr. Monahue Murray at London's Charing Cross Hospital. What is the what is the layman term for that, Jill? The layman term of pulmonary um, Probably cancer. Really? Yeah, yeah. Or an early form of mesothelioma. Oh. Mm -hmm. okay. Which is a form of asbestos cancer. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So, um... Which, side note, speaking of nothing, I was reading this to my family, who is from California, and they all started singing a jingle commercial that came on for asbestos attorneys. What? Like they oh, all. Oh, yeah. They had I remember the, those growing up. So they all started singing it. And I was like, oh, now it makes sense that yeah. it was playing heavily in California at yep. that time. So it was the first documented death of the autopsy. He was 33 years old. Ooh. And it revealed large amounts of asbestos fibers in his lungs. Reports of worker deaths from fibrosis in asbestos plants in Italy, France, echoed the studies in the United States. As early as 1908, insurance companies in the U.S. and Canada began decreasing coverage and benefits while increasing premiums for workers and Shocking. employees in the asbestos industry. If you don't live in the United States, mm -hmm. let me test tell you, it used to be the norm that anyone who had any kind of serious health condition would be either denied in health insurance or would be charged an excessive amount of money to mm -hmm. get coverage. Yeah. 
It's really stupid. Yeah. So we see asbestos obviously is still, I mean, a thing until the um, 70s, 80s, 2000s, mm-hmm. right? And it, the war only pushes the production, right? Right. Yep. What's better in war than fireproof materials? Exactly. So, and the other thing, because of this high rate of use of asbestos in the U.S. military led to a high number of veterans having mesothelioma. Yeah, I think my grandpa on my dad's side died. Jeez. Not shocked at all. Yeah. Um, people in the military treated um, uh, like they're expendable because that's how the government right. views them. So um, several factors contributed to the rise of production, right? It was consumption, of course. But a rise in domestic construction industry increased the demand. So there were roads built between the 30s and 50s that contained asbestos-laced asphalt. What? They just were putting that shit in every. God, it was Why? like salt. <laughs> just so, season it. Here are some. I'm going to list... Because that's, I mean, the basis of asbestos, right? Um, The U.S. consumption of asbestos peaked in 1973 at 804,000 tons. The world demand for asbestos was realized in 1977. Some 25 countries were producing almost 4.8 metric, 4.8 million metric tons per year. Where? Where? Where is it all going? Mm -hmm. Where where is it? If there's that much in the world? There's so much. That's so much. Mm Mm-hmm. But by the late 1970s, we started to see the decline in asbestos because the public was starting to understand the connection between asbestos exposure and debilitating lung conditions. Organized labor and trade unions were demanding safer and healthier working conditions, and liability claims against major asbestos manufacturers caused many of them to make the market asbestos substitutes. By 2003... New environmental regulations and consumer demand help push for full or partial bans of asbestos in 17 countries. And guess who's not on that list? Ooh, ooh, ooh. The United States. Shock. Mm-hmm. In 2005, asbestos was banned throughout the European Union. In recent years, many of the world's emerging economies have embraced the use of asbestos as eagerly as more developed nations. And still, the U.S. has no asbestos bans. Not surprised. None. The last U.S. asbestos mine closed in 2002, right? Like we said. Um, More than a century of the country's asbestos production. And although the United States has always been a major importer of asbestos, historically providing only a small percentage to the world's supply, it was always the world's largest consumer. Again, not surprised. Mm -hmm. Several bills in Congress have sought to create the first national mesothelioma registry, as well as renewed interest in banning asbestos. However... In June 2018, excuse me, the EPA announced that it would consider new uses of asbestos. <laughs> Isn't that just magical? Wonder who could have come up with that idea. I. <laughs> so I found some other little interesting facts about asbestos apart from that article that just covered it also well. Mm-hmm. Um, exposure to, I almost said radiation. Exposure <laughs> to asbestos caused mesothelioma, rare cancer. And it's slowly developed, right? Um, and it you can only get asbestos damage from inhalation mm-hmm. or ingestion. Mm-hmm. You can't get it from like just touching it, mm-hmm. right? Which is why people can go into your house and like they'll like cordon off a room and remove everything and they'll be in full hazmat. Right. Yeah. And respirators. Um, okay. Here is a couple of interesting things that because you know like that Asbestos in ceiling tiles and all those things, right? But a couple of interesting things that asbestos was in was bowling balls. What? So people that bowled heavily or worked in bowling alleys had 
cases of mesothelioma. Yeah, because the bowling balls can chip. Yeah. What? And the inside, you know, when you put your fingers inside of a bowling ball, it's porous. So you're, yeah. Dealing Why would you put it in a bowling ball, though? Why wouldn't you? <laughs> they were Again, salt. Just hold, <laughs> I want you to hold on to that sentiment, okay? Because you're going to keep wanting to say that. Okay. Um, bicycle seats, but the pads in the seat had asbestos. Sure. Jill, I know. I told you. Hold on to it. Vintage books. Spell check. <gasps> prepare. <laughs> Vintage books in the binding or cover, mostly journals or commercial publications. It's coming. The entire book of Fahrenheit 451, the original printing, is made entirely of asbestos paper. <laughs> oh my God, that's so cool. <laughs> For worry that the book was going to be burned in protest. Oh my God. Really? So they stopped it at the source. <laughs> what? Like, Try yeah. it, motherfucker. So the entire book, front to back, pages and cover, is made of asbestos paper. So it could, which is the most irony. Tip top irony. Like, Ray top Bradbury, you fucking genius. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Okay. We got there. We got to it. <laughs> so, uh, a, a couple of the other things that were interesting outside of building materials you had children's toys that had asbestos, crayons. Wait, crayons? Four out of 28 showed asbestos contamination. Finger paint kits. Um, here's some vintage, a uh, vintage item that was made entirely from raw asbestos. Fake snow before <laughs> World War II. Ah, shit. Oh, that's funny. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. Shit. Do you have pajamas on there? No. But yeah. yes, it would have been in pajamas and children's children's clothes. pajamas specifically, and it would it they advertised it made with asbestos. So if your house burns down, your children won't burn. You won't. So like Greek burial shrouds. Yeah. Right. So yeah, that was. Um, asbestos it was a little long but i feel like necessary huh. i that's my holy grail item now is an original fahrenheit 451 absolutely if you find one can we try to put it on fire i will cut your hands off okay fine we'll get two one for you one for <laughs> i the need fire. to know if it does or not <laughs> one for you one for the fire i do too i was tickled pink i am giddy to learn that <laughs> Are you are you ready for your poisons? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, um, I'm. It's okay. <laughs> I'm never gonna get over that. That's the coolest fucking thing ever. My subject is uh, arsenic wallpaper, which, if you collect anything from uh, the Victorian era, you've probably heard of this before. But it's not a well known thing, mm -hmm. I don't think, because it's pretty specific to 19th century England. I've specifically heard about it in terms of collectors speaking about it with vintage antique taxidermy. Really? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Wallpaper? Like birds. No, no like arsenic. Oh, oh. So arsenic was widely used during the 19th century in fucking everything. It was in food. It was in medicine. It was in textiles. It was in face powder. It it's was... the pepper to asbestos salt. Yes, exactly. Delicious. It was one of those things. It was, um, it was similar to how radium was... Um, marketed as like a pick-me-up right a revitalization useful yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah put arsenic in it it's great for you i mean um so so the reason the arsenic <laughs> was added to wallpaper was very specifically for the color um kind of like uh what jill was saying about um uranium being green and yellow mm -hmm. arsenic same thing it's got that pretty green pretty green uh green yellow color to it 
So this arsenic green pigment was first invented in 1775 by a Swedish German chemist named uh, named Carl Wilhelm Scheele, S C H E E L E. So I'm not sure if I'm saying that correct. It's okay. He doesn't listen to the show. He might. <laughs> he knows how to Google. Um, so yeah, he he invented um, this arsenic pigment because it's just just it's this beautiful bright green kind of when you think of the word arsenic, you might come up with the right color in your head mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Um, so it became the most popular color for everything in Victorian England. It was you know everybody's trying to. Um, one up everyone else social climbing is really important so if one person thinks it's great then everybody climbs on the bandwagon so everybody had this beautiful green wallpaper in their house mm-hmm. and um, one of the main designers of housewares and house design William Morris specifically like the William Morris who's the William Morris yeah like the it's a notable name isn't it William a- William Morris isn't it like a Oh, no, that's newer. Never mind. Yeah, he's just <laughs> was the dude who made wallpaper in England. Shut up. Just I was going to say. I mean, he might. I, I really feel like Billy. I mean, back then he know. was the William. Yeah. Thank you. Um, okay, so this guy, he uh, designed wallpapers because that was the big thing. It's like, I make wallpaper, so. Woo. And it was a sign of affluence, too, if you had. Oh, yeah. Wallpaper. Yeah, fancy wallpapers and, you know, look at how bright and beautiful and green this is. Mm-hmm. And it, it had, a, you know, kind of a glowing effect. It didn't glow like uranium, but I mean, it was so bright that it kind of glowed and made your house brighter, made the room brighter because everybody's, you know, there's no electricity. So there's no artificial light. Everything's by candlelight in the dark. So it kind of helped with right. brightening up the room and for the family. And also slowly kill you. <laughs> yes. So... Um, fun fact, arsenic is deadly. And if uh, you're around it too much, it will kill you. <laughs> <laughs> so the way that the arsenic ended up killing people from the wallpaper uh, is thus. Um, any kind of flaking of the wallpaper through um, abrasions or um, moisture. What? It's where it starts with all this shit. I know. Once it starts to break down, you're done. Yeah. Get rid of it. Toast. Well, if you're rubbing up against it and it's getting on your skin. As children would as do. As children would do. Asshole. If you're handling it a lot, if you're if it's um, breaking off and flaking and you're inhaling it. Um, but the other fun thing about arsenic wallpaper is that if it gets um, exposed to heat or moisture, it releases vapors. Should have mixed it with asbestos. Right. Yeah, you don't want that shit to burn. I mean, wow, it emits vapors? Like vapors, yeah. arsenic tea? Ar- well, as they're lighting all the candles yep. at night. Mm-hmm. Oh, and kerosene lamps. Yep, you warm up that wallpaper. It's they're fucking asbestos wicks. Yep. God, it's all over the place. Bless the Victorian how, era. How did we make it out alive? Not a so, lot of us did. Well, the mortality rate <laughs> for children was quite high. As, as, uh, as I will explain. See, um, this wallpaper was killing a lot of kids because, because kids, they were licking it. Kids like to lick the wallpaper. They like to breathe it in. They got to get that vapor in their lungs. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a case where there was a, a doctor named Thomas Horton, Orton who was charged with 
discovering the cause of illness for a, a large family. The parents and all four of the children became ill, very ill. And oh. he was, uh, he tried to take care of them, blah, blah, blah. You know, doctors back then weren't great, but um, it wasn't his fault they died. All the kids died. And he started noticing this pattern with um, children dying and he, and just nobody being able to explain why. Mm. And it wasn't the normal like starvation or, you know, all Dysentery. the, yeah, or cholera. It wasn't any of that. It was it, it, people getting sick and they really couldn't figure out why. And wow. so he started to make notes about the home that they were in and um, their water was clean. Their house was clean to Victorian standards. Um, there, there was no obvious uh, culprit, but then he started to think, well, I've been hearing these rumors about the wallpaper is deadly. And of course, as a physician, he's like, that's fucking stupid. <laughs> <laughs> but then he started to like do the research and found out that, see, they had an idea that arsenic wasn't great for you at the time, by the time this was going on, because this was in um, 1862. When wasn't syphilis also a large... Problem. Well, yeah, syphilis is all over the goddamn place. Right. Everybody's got syphilis. But, but like, if it's not syphilis, what, what is, is it? Yeah. They they could tell if it was syphilis and it totally wasn't. Wow. What were did it say what the symptoms were with all the kids? I didn't write that down. I'll get oh, it. That's okay. I'll get it. We'll find out. But it, it's one of those things where the most common uh causes of death were well known. Mm -hmm. So they they could uh tell immediately it's not cholera. It's not right. starvation. It's not murder wow. or whatever. Anyway, so yeah, it, uh, this guy, Thomas Orton, was like, mm, we got to do something about this wallpaper. Back to Mr. William Morris. The William Morris. The wallpaper dude. He was like, guys, this is not a real thing. This, this isn't, nobody needs to worry about this. Arsenic in the wallpaper is not hurting anybody. I'm going to keep selling my beautiful green arsenic wallpaper and you guys are going to buy it. Yeah. Um, he was also the son of one of the largest arsenic producers. Shocking. Shocking. Oh. Maybe not the son of, but he was related in some way to a large arsenic manufacturer. I mean, hands in the pockets. Yep. I mean, how it starts. Mm -hmm. Every time. Do you, do you have the symptoms? I did find the symptoms. But, so yes. the acute symptoms, Jill, for those at home, acute is... Uh, on set. Thank you. There is vomiting, abdominal pain, watery diarrhea, which we, that's like a double negative. You don't need to include watery with diarrhea. <laughs> it's uh, Actually, there's a difference. Yeah. There's a medical difference. I mean, I don't want to get into diarrhea on the show, but briefly, could you? Because you know, okay, you know the consistency of diarrhea sure is thing. liquid. Yeah. It's like pure water. And that's probably real bad. That's super bad. That's very bad, yes. <laughs> okay. Thanks, guys. Um, the chronic ongoing symptoms, thickened skin, darker skin, and cancer. But the diagnostic method was urine, blood, or hair testing. Prevention, drinking water without arsenic. <laughs> <laughs> Don't lick the wallpaper. Mm -hmm. All right. Yeah. So, I mean, yes, these symptoms could, to an untrained eye, be... Uh, they could point to something else, but the the doctor was like, "No, this isn't this isn't any of these things." Another little like uh, more explanation on the symptoms, where it began with headaches, confusion, severe diarrhea, and drowsiness. 
And as it develops, it goes into convulsions, changes in fingernail pigmentation called leukonychia striata. So the lines that you get, which you can still get when you're really sick. I got it when I had COVID. I had lines grow out in my nail. I've got bumps in my nail Mm -hmm. that are still there. When it becomes acute, the symptoms may include diarrhea, vomiting, vomiting, blood, blood in the urine, cramping muscles, cramping muscles, hair loss, stomach pain, and convulsions. The organs of the body are usually affected. Lungs, skin, kidneys, and liver. Coma, then death. Yeah, it's pretty bad. There's their symptoms. And especially deadly to children because children dehydrate quicker and... They don't recover as fast, uh, especially when they're malnourished in Victorian England. And everybody has TB and... (laughs) Literally just fighting for survival. Yeah. Seriously, how are we still here? With all that, you would think the whole population would be dead. Well, the birth rate was quite high because there was no birth control. And even though the mortality rate was also quite high, it didn't quite equal out so that some of the babies lived. Wow. It's just... I'm a survivor. Yeah. I'm Basically, if if you're descendant from anyone who lived during uh, in England during the 19th century, your genes are tough as shit. Right. You probably <laughs> didn't live in a house with wallpaper. I'm yeah. just going to say that. Oh, also, fun fact, um, for people of European descent, y- you are more likely to be to have a higher resistance to smallpox because uh, Europeans were exposed to cowpox throughout the centuries. And so um, European people uh, are less likely to get smallpox because of that. Thank you for coming wow. to my talk. Oh, sorry. good to know. That no, that's a fun sorry. little fact. Yeah. Cow- cowpox and smallpox are, are similar to chickenpox there. It's, uh, it's all related. So does that mean I'm good? No. Oh, maybe no. that means you, I have European descent because I never got the chicken pox and my whole fourth grade class did. That's not what I was saying. Okay, fine. <laughs> that's what we took from it. <laughs> that's what I heard. That's what I so, took from it. You are, if exposed to smallpox now, <laughs> a person of European descent is less likely to have as severe okay, of a fine. case. Right. I'm sorry. All right. Are you kind of white? Well, I'm half. Yeah. Oh, I, yes. My I mom's guess. white. So, yeah, you might be a little resistant. We're here. Irish. Oh, hey, cool. Yeah, yeah. you and me are probably related. Probably. Yeah. Not, I'm not. Don't look at me for any <laughs> Irish descent. Okay. Not happening here. Whatever. Yeah, I mean, uh, it, I just wanted specifically to talk about our stinking wallpaper. No, it's very interesting because it's, yeah. it's I mean, it's still prevalent now, but it's not. It's a really, really weird little, like, blip in mm. all of the weird stuff that happened in England during the time. Yeah. And it's one of those things that you wouldn't necessarily run into a house that still has that mm-hmm. kind of wallpaper in it. It's the you can find those wallpapers in museums, and there was so much arsenic in them that they are still currently under glass, and they wow. have to be protected. Um, just real quick, I got my information from the St. Louis Art Museum dot com which is like slam dot com. Oh, I love that. Oh, yeah, yeah. that was a good one. Well, the, my only. <laughs> Correlation to arsenic is from watching way too much true crime. Well, yeah. <laughs> like the first 48 and like, you know, Rat Unsolved poison. Mysteries. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because arsenic, doesn't it taste like sweet almond? Is that what? No. So um, cyanide smells like bitter almonds. Thank you. You're welcome. This is why I love your brain. Arsenic is one of those things where you can slowly poison somebody and they kind of don't know why they're sick. And you can just increase the dose over time and then they get sicker and sicker and then they finally die. And it's a really good form of like, if you have munchies by proxy, arsenic's a good 
Don't use our, I'm sorry. Greg, no, Greg, go ahead and speed up this next section like a drug disclosure. The multiple prophecies incorporate an LSD does not contone the use of arsenic for the slow death of anybody in your life. Period. Period. But no, it was, it was definitely, I mean. Well, and that was, I think, like, that was a popular, popular way, like, back in the, like, 60s and mm-hmm. 70s to get rid of people. I mean, it makes sense because it's mm-hmm. tasteless and. Yeah. And then when they figured out finally how to test and find for it. Yeah. And well, and it's, it's even still now readily available. Mm-hmm. It's easy to get still. Yeah. So it's one of those yeah. poisons that was easy to, to use. Mm-hmm. And it was a pretty green color. Yeah, it, it was, was beautiful. so pretty. And quickly, we'll go over another thing that was prevalent in your homes. Yeah. Which um, was lead. Lead. Yeah. Lead. We could talk about lead for weeks because yeah. there's so much. It was in everything. Yeah. So um, we're if we're tying it back into Vincent and Antique, which is what we're trying to do, um, lead paint in old homes everybody has heard about lead paint and don't chew on the windowsill um homes with paint prior to 1978 Mm -hmm. Um, but up until the 1980s because i think people were still reusing the paint in their homes Mm -hmm. to touch up oh that makes sense yeah Mm -hmm. so even as as late as the 1980s you're gonna have paint in your house that's got lead in it Mm -hmm. and by itself if you're not touching it if you're not sucking on it if you're Mm -hmm. not ingesting it or anything like that it's not excessively dangerous but the problem is with these old paints just like anything else just like everything else we've talked about when it starts to break down when it starts to get dusty and you breathe it in Mm-hmm. It gets into your body, and the fun thing with lead is that it starts, it stores up in your bones and your teeth. So Jeez. it's not just in your body, and then you excrete it. It stays with you, even like after, radium. Yeah, even after chelation. Wow, it's in your body. So well, and the reason people were ingesting it so much, specifically children, is because lead is sweet, like candy. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. So eating lead paint chips. They tasted good. What? So that's why kids were ingesting so much of it. That's where that stereotype comes from. Yes. Oh, shit. Because they were sweet. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so um, it's it's pretty easy to figure out if you have lead um, in the paint in your home. Checking the the date that your house was built is, uh, is pretty easy. Um, if you're worried about whether or not you've been exposed and you the, and for some reason you can't check your house, um, it's a really simple blood test to find out if you have been exposed to lead. So they, I like this measurement. Um, they measure micrograms per deciliter of lead in your blood. And so technically any amount is unsafe because lead is a heavy metal and will kill you. Uh, but five micrograms per deciliter is considered possibly unsafe. But if it gets up to around 45, that requires treatment. Um, treatment is actually super easy. It's one of it's one of the simplest things um, to that you can do. Really, you just take a pill, and then the pill that you take makes the lead bind with the thing. And then, oh yeah, that makes sense. You pee it out. Yeah, you oh, know what I'm trying to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's kind of what I was thinking. It's called it's like ke- a magnet. It's yeah. called chelation. It's super simple. If for some reason you can't take this pill, they give you an injection. But most people can have the pill. Wow. So if 
for whatever reason, you've got lead poisoning of any kind, the treatment's super easy, super simple. It's not like surgery or anything. Right. So it's not something that stays with you forever if you know if you're aware of exposure. The there will be certain amounts of lead still in your body, but you can stop any uh problems that are wow. Uh, yeah. So so a couple other things I had about checking for lead and where what vintage items and antique items may yeah. contain lead. So 3M makes a lead check test for home. It's an instant test. Seriously? Comes with a little swatch card. Oh, that's perfect. And you can take it and rub it on. I think Billy Billy B used it in a TikTok to test her play. Her piano had lead paint. Oh. Before she was refinishing it. So here's a couple of things to watch for if you think it may have lead paint. Tin panels. From old buildings, yeah. the tin ceilings, leaded crystal, obviously, if it's probably broken, it's okay if it's in crystal form. Hardware from old buildings could be made of lead or painted with lead paint. Jewelry, toys, furniture, dishes have a high content of lead, some can. Oh, yeah. Hmm. Um, and typeset letters. <gasps> oh, yeah. Right. I could see mm -hmm. that. Um, let's see. If you think that your item has lead, you should seal it before you bring it into your home. So especially where we live, there's a popularity in shabby, chic, chippy things. Mm. Oh, if you're yeah. going to have a chipped window, chipped door, chipped, seal it with a, uh, some type of shellac, a yeah. thick sealant, something that's not going to be touched um, and messed with. Yeah, if you can seal it, it's relatively safe. Yes, and the so the there was lead was banned in the United States in 1978 by the Consumer Product Safety Improvement Act. Um, but prior to 2009, the U.S. had no laws restricting heavy metals in consumer products, including toys. So here's a fun fact. It's not an actual ban. It is an allotted amount. Oh, Jesus. Of course it is. So so yeah. I have some numbers on the lead percentage in vinyl and non-vinyl toys. Ooh. So specifically from the 70s to 80s, we have um, this is their lead content for Barbie dolls. Fisher Price Little People figurines Ooh. and My Little Pony and their accessories. Ah, oh, fuck. These results were compared to toys from 2013, 2010 to 2013. So these toys were compared to toys being produced in the 2010s. Mm -hmm. Non vinyl toys, 66% contained detectable levels of heavy metals. Cool. Such as cadmium, mercury, barium, and lead. Fuck yeah. 69% of the vinyl toys tested contained heavy metals. Yep. Shit, no wonder I'm screwed up. Toys tested after the CPSIA, about a third showed traces of only barium, but no other heavy metals. Fun tidbit. So if you're a vintage collector of toys, maybe be cognizant of what they could contain. Now yeah. I'm kind of questioning some of the stuff I have for my son to play with. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Man, if we got some of those lead oh God, that little marker things. Stresses me out. So, um, two last things uh, about lead. Um, if you are a vintage car enthusiast and you are lucky enough to have uh, a vehicle with the original engine in it, then you probably already know this, but older engines, um, at least in the U.S., um, I think there are several countries that still allow leaded gasoline, but older oh, engines yeah. require um, lead to be added to the gasoline for the engine to function. So if you're a classic car person um, or if you're looking to get into it, be prepared to uh, buy lead to put into your gas tank. You wow. have to have it. That's so crazy. Blows um, my mind. Last fun fact. Chernobyl 
the um you know big giant nuclear wasteland yeah, is uh, the the core th- the <laughs> yeah, yes the the big reactor that exploded um is completely encased in lead now to protect us from uh continued escaping radiation lead is the only thing that uh, yeah. they could put over it to oh, uh, stop so that. it's probably a big thing out at the INL oh yeah 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 lead's important interesting in that way thanks for hanging out with well, us there today. are some good uses for lead <laughs> yes and asbestos and, as- and uranium and chernobyl and the yeah. day chernobyl <laughs> Um, I learned a lot. That was very informative about being in the know of what's happening. In the- yeah, now it just makes me hesitate to grab anything now. I know, right? I feel fine. <laughs> <laughs> Something's going to kill us. <laughs> Wait, I wonder in 30 years what our version of lead, asbestos, and uranium is going to be. Vape, 40, 50 vape years. pens? But probably. I'm going to say artificial sweeteners. Oh, oh, yeah. I ingest that all the time. Right. It's a common stance. Uh, preservatives oh, yeah. in foods, we rot slower than we used to. Thank the gods. <laughs> Just saying. And that's all we had for today. There's those couple of little tidbits for you. As always, I hope you find some good shit. And I hope you remember to look under the tables. Please remember to do your research, children. Bye. Bye. Bye.